Father, we give thanks in anticipation at the start of another new semester. We acknowledge all the ways that you continue to move and, and grow us, and the ways that you've been faithful in this space and in this place as we gather as a community. Father, you speak, and we're so eager to hear what it is that you have to say, and we know that you want to speak to us more. You have so much yet to reveal to us. That's what you said through your Son. And so, Father, we open ourselves up to whatever it is that you want to reveal to us. And we ask that at the start of another new semester, you open each of us up in a new way to receive the growth that you have in mind for us each. Father, we know that in this process of sanctification, we are never done. And the more we grow in you, the more we, we realize we need to grow. And so, Father, we ask that you would just continue this movement within us and within this campus. We say thanks for what you've done and thanks for what you're about to do. We confidently claim this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I was reading back through a, a favorite book, Bob Goff's Love Does. And there's a story that he tells in there of an instance where him and several friends agreed to go on a diet together because they each wanted to lose a few pounds. He wakes up one morning and opens the fridge door and is staring in and trying to decide what healthy choice he is going to make that he wishes he didn't have to, and settles upon a, a couple of bagels and a little tinfoil packet of Philadelphia cream cheese that he takes out. Now he's disappointed as he begins to spread this cream cheese on his bagel, noticing that he's better use a little less than he's used before because he is now on a diet, and cream cheese probably isn't the best thing to be slathering on a bagel when you're trying to lose weight. But he's disappointed instantly when he tastes it and he realizes that this girl who's been staying in their house probably bought the, the low-fat version. And now he's got this terrible taste in his mouth, so he figures he can make up for that by putting on twice as much. Because if it's half the calories, let's just have twice as much and actually enjoy the taste of the stuff. So he spreads it on liberally twice as thick, grabs a big slab out of this tinfoil piece. But again, the taste has not actually gotten better, but it's gotten twice as bad. At this moment in time, his wife walks into the room, and he asks her, what's the problem, and why does Lynn have to buy this half-calorie crap? It doesn't work. She takes the tinfoil out of his hand and opens it up further to re read Crisco lard on the package. His lesson in the entire scenario and the takeaway was simply this, that if we're experiencing something really crappy, in life, or we're feeding ourselves a bunch of garbage, doubling down isn't going to make it any better. In fact, it makes it worse. And so the opportunity arises for each and every believer to be able to ask themselves, what is it that I'm putting in me? What is it that I'm planting myself in and near? What are the choices that are coming into my life? And if it's not having the desired result, if I'm not getting what I really want, I need to start asking myself some serious questions about what I'm doing in life. And how I'm responding to the invitation of the gospel. Last year, Dr., or last semester, Dr. Paul Mapindi stood on this stage. I think it was the third chapel of the semester. He was our guest from Mission French Africa. And I remember one of the questions he asked at the very beginning of that chapel. Is your religion working for you? Is it giving you everything that you hoped that it would? And if it's not, if it's not delivering on the promises of the gospel, then... What's broken? Are the promises simply not true? Or are we not claiming them rightly? 
Understanding how it is that we interact with God and asking these big questions of life, these are the purposes of wisdom literature and scripture. And throughout the ancient Near East, people wrestling with ideas of um, where is the goodness of God in the middle of this struggle that I'm in? Um, how is it that I find a blessed life? How is it that I find what it is that I'm really looking for? And so all these wisdom givers offer these small pithy statements or long lectures all on what wisdom really tells us. Throughout the history of God's people, the Psalms have become this body of work that has often become the songbook of God's people. It gives us voice when we don't have one. I can remember times in my life when I've struggled deeply and turned to the Psalms to pray words for me when I didn't have them for myself. Psalms are, are words of, of exuberance and exaltation and celebration when something beautiful has happened. Psalms of coronation are song in the, in the group of God's people when a new king would come and claim the throne and everybody would be excited that God had been faithful to his promises. Other psalms are sung when someone is in the pit of life and they're just looking to vent and, and find a voice of catharsis before God. Psalms sometimes are just an expression of anger and frustration. Sometimes psalms when we are in the pit, that the words within them actually become the rungs on the ladder that lead us back out of that pit and back to a place where it feels normal again. Psalms allow for the emotion and the, on the whole of our being to find its place in God, to find our wrestling in life and in discipleship. And so all semester long, we're going to look at some of the different psalms that are found in the Psalter, throughout the different genres, even of psalms themselves, and look at the wisdom that's passed down to us in it. This morning, we start with Psalm 1. Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. They are like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will be destroyed. Most scholars believe that Psalm 1 and 2 at one point in time were actually the same psalm. In fact, Luke in the book of Acts refers to two of these, quoting one psalm and actually putting them both together. Psalm 1 opens with the line, blessed are those. Psalm 2 closes with the line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This notion of blessing and the pursuit of it is how do I find blessing in life is so much of what wisdom literature and the Psalms are all about. How many of us aren't asking these questions ourselves right now? How do I find the good life? How do I find that it is well place? How do I find a way to anchor myself there so that whatever happens in life, and you heard them in the songs already that we've sung, sort of these, these lowest pit moments of life and these highest mountaintop experiences of life, that regardless of where I am, I am anchored in a place of it as well. Blessed can be translated in other places, happy or, or joyous or a state of permanent, constant joy. 
I love Bruce Waltke's definition of this word. He uses it already in Genesis 1, and the first time it's used in Scripture, he defines being blessed by God as being filled with the potency of life. Favored by God, being filled with the potency of life, having an immovable joy, having an it is well kind of feeling day in and day out. And the writers of wisdom literature often tell us that repeatedly in life we're standing at places that feel like a fork in the road. There is a path that goes this way and a path that goes this way. We're constantly faced with choices. You will have them again and again before you even go to bed tonight. Moments, instances where we have to choose again and again and again. Do I choose the path of righteousness? Do I go the way that God is instructing me? Or do I not believe that it will take me to the place of blessing If you think about it, every time we ever choose something other than the will of God, essentially that's what we're doing in that moment. We're believing that what he is offering and suggesting cannot deliver what it promises. That our own intellect and our own choices will take us there instead. We trust our mind more than we trust the word that's been given to us. And in an act of arrogance, we move in a different direction. What the the writers of the wisdom literature and the psalmist already in Psalm 1 wants to lay out for us is that blessing only exists in a certain place. And one of the great misunderstandings in Christianity today is our understanding of God's intent and the way that he instructs us. Because blessing is not instructed to us as a reward for good behavior. I think so often we think God will bless me if I do this. That's not how blessing is described. God isn't trying to be tricky. God isn't trying to be fickle. God is not elusive. God lays down, this is the path of righteousness. This is the path that will lead to destruction. Choose. Going down this doesn't make God happy and so he rewards me with blessing. God's saying, that was the path of blessing. I offered it to you from the very beginning. And so punishments, or that's what we often think it is, if when we are disobedient, isn't a punishment. It's the logical consequence of the choices that we have made. God's saying, I'm laying it all out before you. I'm telling you what's the right way to go. Go down this road, and you will receive the logical consequences. It's not me angry and punishment upon you. I've told you what the way of righteousness is. Go down that path. Find out for yourself. Sin is its own worst punishment. It will never give us what it is that we're really looking for. And it will always be the Crisco lard wrapped up in a Philadelphia cream cheese wrapper. It's just not going to get us there. It'll never give us what we want. And the psalmist tells us that anybody who's going to really understand this understands that there's there's sort of this series of prohibitions, that these are the things that a, a person seeking righteousness and seeking a place of blessing in life does not do. They don't walk in step with the wicked. They don't stand in the way that sinners take. They don't sit in the company of mockers. But they don't just not do things. Christianity isn't about just not doing certain things. There is also a level of response and maturity and growth as a follower of Christ that actually takes us in a direction. Being a follower of God doesn't just mean not going down the road of destruction. It actually means going down the road of righteousness. Never in wisdom literature is standing at this fork in the road for a long period of time ever given to us as an actual option. You are always moving somewhere. The question we have to ask ourselves is which direction? 
And so wisdom is offered to us as not just a do not, but also a do. Delight in the law. Meditate on the law. So often I think we think of... um, This is, for me, one of the great indicators. If you're looking for some spiritual dashboard markers of how am I growing in my faith, do I understand what Christian maturity is, and am I moving that direction? I think one of the most telltale signs of this is how we view sin. If we really believe that the law of God is a fence around where we are, but the really fun playground is the one on the other side of it, and that sin is something we would want to get away with if we really could, then we haven't yet fully believed that sin is its own worst punishment and that it's a logical consequence of a negative choice. We act sometimes and believe as if God is holding out on us like everybody else gets to experience something richer than we do, but Christians are just the people who have to choose the paler version of life. Significant growth in sanctification and in the Christian walk and discipleship begins to teach us that actually we want to go down the road of blessing. At the outset, this will always look like a great risk. It doesn't look like it will work in a world today. It's the point where we stand and we want to make concessions, right? Where Christians, one after the other, say, yeah, but in the real world... And then we sort of scale down and water down and pale down the gospel... And we've been really good at that as an American church, haven't we? We strip it of its potency because the blessing we don't really believe is a blessing. And so we stand at the place or try to as long as we can of just not doing really horrible things and not being really terrible people, but not necessarily going all the way down. The invitation is to be all in. It's not for a lordship of Christ in 25 or 50% of our life. It's the Jesus who says, I want you to experience all of it. I had fun in preparation for this message. I was reading two voices primarily in conversation with one another. Bob Goff, who talks so much about just delighting in Jesus and delighting in who he is. And the other was a sermon on Psalm 1 from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And it was interesting to listen to these voices talk to each other and how they understood this concept in Scripture. One of Spurgeon's great lines in his sermon on Psalm 1 that challenged me again and again is he asks and offers this challenge to us, how few among us can lay the claim to this benediction that blessed are those who walk in this, blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night, realizing I don't do that enough. How many of us can lay claim to this benediction and say I do that, 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 is, that is me. I am tasting everything that there is in the kingdom of God, and man, is it good. I know I want that, and I know my heart is growing that direction. But what a challenge for him to still put before us 150 years later. How few among us can lay the claim to this benediction? Essentially, his question, paraphrased, is really this. How much Jesus do you want? How much do you really want him to run in your life, take it over, run amok, and let him have his lordship? And so the question underneath that question is, then how much do you actually trust him? Do you still trust your own judgment to bring you to a place of blessing in life? Or will we fully surrender to the place, the only place that can give us what it is that we're actually looking for? A constant state of joy, a sense of purpose in life, 
to be filled with the, do you want to be filled with the potency of life? The invitation from the psalmist is to put our roots deeper in the only thing that can give it to us. And he outlines it so clearly, just like Jesus does, as an either-or injunction. It's not a pause button that leaves us here for very long. Jesus, build your house on the sand, build it on the rock. There's a wide path and a narrow path. Be grafted in me or be pruned by my Father off of it. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room in the middle. The gospel becomes pretty clear. The psalmist laid it out and Jesus does the same. I think we want to believe for so long, and this is a common theme, and I'm sorry if I'm challenging you too hard as college students. So often in college, at this stage of life, we just want to spend time in neutrality and figure we'll give ourselves permission to make the most mature choices later. Is that, is that fair? Do we do that? I've caught myself doing that on a number of stages in life. I want to hold on longer because I'm afraid of where God might take me. But I want you to hear the invitation from God. I want you to hear the invitation into the place of blessing that comes in this text. Verse 4, not so the wicked. They're like chaff. The wind blows away. I read this passage and I was meditating on this idea of the, of the wind blowing this away. And I had this picture in my mind of like the final day when Christ comes back. And in the same way that God's breath spoke in creation and things came into being as, as his words left his mouth and as he breathed life into man, that one more time again, God would breathe the wind and the trees would bend over and snap all the way back and all of creation would be awash in the breath of God one more time again in its completion and on the other side of the grave with a resurrected new life that claims eternity. And all things in this world that have been planted and rooted in eternity will stand and everything else, the dross, all of our useless pursuits will all be washed away and all taken. And so we have to ask ourselves, what am I planting in now? Am I rooted in that which will last? And is my life wrapped around the things that are of eternal value already now. It is not about the suspension of decision until a moment of the future. It's a realization that already now and in each and every injunction, each and every decision moment in life, we have the opportunity to decide, not just do I want this path or this path, do I want to invest and root myself in the things of eternity already now? Because it will all, everything else, be washed away. When the breath of God speaks that one last time, when he said, I am making all things new and now I am finishing the work that I begun, what will stand in our lives and what will be left? And so the invitation is delight and meditate on this law so that you can find out what are the things that are of eternity that we can invest in now, that we can make our lives all about, that become really who we are and give us everything it is that we've actually been looking for. I think this is Jesus' paraphrase of Psalm 1 in John chapter 15. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me... You're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, 
that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. There it is again. The purpose in all of this is to give us joy, to help us become everything that God wanted us to be.